when people hear the phrase common ground, uh, what occasionally comes to mind at first is a kind of squishy, mawkish, sentimental approach to politics and culture that is not just intellectually tenuous, but also kind of like operationally naive. That's Scott St. Louis, program manager of the Common Ground Initiative at the Hallenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. Today we hear from Scott about what it means for the left and right to find, or even to pursue, common ground in a time of political hyperpolarization such as ours. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. All right, let me, let me make a confession here. For a number of months, since November at the very latest, I think it's been difficult to know what it would mean, uh, really mean, to pursue common ground between the left and right. In many ways, the polarization of the last few years, which simply reached its peak during election 2016 and the victory of President Trump, seems to have marked a national repudiation of centrism and political moderation. So in one sense, whatever rolling green hills of common ground that once might have separated the left and right appear now to be a kind of no man's land, a kind of killing field between two distant trenches. So if pursuing common ground means, say, splitting the difference between the left and right, or finding yourself squarely in the middle, well, that seems kind of impossible and not all that helpful. But Scott St. Louis, our guest today, assures us that that's not what the pursuit of common ground is about at all, at least in his view. In our conversation, Scott advances a rather different and I'd say more useful definition of common ground. Uh, We discuss how he uses this definition to plan events and host debates and dialogues at the Howenstein Center. Uh, Finally, Scott and I discuss the benefit of hosting such events on college campuses, and Scott considers some new definitions of the public intellectual. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Well, Scott St. Louis, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Well, thank you for having me, Joe. So, Scott, you've uh, you've taken the reins of the Common Ground Initiative at a time of, let's say, polarization. Uh, what does finding common ground mean when the gap between the left and right is so div- is so wide? So, so does finding common ground simply mean, as it once probably did, and we've talked about this, you know, this merely sort of splitting the difference between two political poles? Or is it now, you know, after the election of Trump and after the sort of um, the disillusion of a, of a lot of our um, a, a lot of bipartisan feeling, uh, is it some something else entirely now? Yeah, well, um, thanks for those great questions. Uh, how to start? Well, as you already know, Joe, I, uh, I took over as program manager of the Common Ground Initiative in August 2016. So my transition into this role at the Howenstein Center has been defined in large part by its very consequential timing (laughs) with regard to events on the national stage, uh, most obviously including the presidential election back in November. So just to start things off, I'll say um, just a few things in general about the Howenstein Center and the Common Ground Initiative, because I mean, in my opinion, there's really like no more interesting place to be at this particular moment in time. 
you know, we're a center that uses our commitment to scholarship and to the humanities and to leadership development in order to design free public programming around a number of subjects that everybody seems to be really, really interested in right now. So, I mean, think about this. The full name of our office is the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies. Our public programs in the Common Ground Initiative focus on cultivating this robust kind of conversation with progressive and conservative thought leaders, uh, often bringing them together onto the same stage. And in June of this year, we're hosting our third annual Midwestern History Conference with nearly 100 scholars who are committed to deepening our understanding of this region of the country that really surprised a lot of people in November. So the Howenstein Center has already spent a number of years cultivating, I think, a, a distinct focus on at least three things that have proven truly captivating to, to millions of people in recent months, especially. So for anyone who's interested in, in learning about what the humanities can bring to the table for our civil society, uh, for our colleges and universities, I just tell them to look into what we do here at the Howenstein Center. But with regard to your question about the meaning of common ground in an age of great acrimony and polarization, I'm not really sure that common ground, as we use the term at the Howenstein Center, could ever really be defined as the act of just trying to split the difference mm. among various constellations of thought. And if it ever did mean that, then that's really not the case at this moment in time. Uh, but nevertheless, that is probably the most frequent misconception I encounter about the nature of our work. When people hear the phrase common ground, uh, what occasionally comes to mind at first is a kind of squishy, mawkish, sentimental approach to politics and culture that is not just intellectually tenuous, but also kind of like operationally naive, right? Mm. But the approach to common ground that we employ at the Howenstein Center is a bit more complicated than that, to be sure. And it's also a lot more compelling. So first, uh, common ground at the Howenstein Center is about building a shared forum in a fractious time. I mean, no matter what your politics are, it's clear that we are living through a challenging moment in our nation's history when citizens from uh, different backgrounds and traditions, uh, from different socioeconomic circumstances, have plenty of easy incentives to work and to communicate exclusively among those who already share most of their basic principles and assumptions and, and interests. But moments like these can be threatening to a democracy like ours, which relies upon open exchange across what are often very stark chasms of difference. So when those exchanges collapse or wither away, then apathy and distrust tend to proliferate. So that's my first point. The second point I'd like to make is that many of the common ground events we host here at the Howenstein Center, and this is true also of your podcast, have uh, quite a historical dimension to them that helps people to understand the contingent and 
very expansive nature of the terms progressive and conservative, right? Both terms have been used to describe uh, pretty wide ranges of thought that mm. do not always fit neatly together and often exist in tension with each other. And additionally, the ascendant ideologies, the primary concerns of both the left and the right, do change over time, sometimes in small ways, but sometimes quite significantly. So progressivism and conservatism are shifting concepts. They have a major contextual component to them, and they both represent extremely diverse coalitions rather than singular monolithic bodies of thought. The intellectual history is what I'm getting at, and the intellectual history of both traditions cannot be understood without paying serious attention to debates within the left and within the right, uh, just as much as the debates between them. And of course, we enjoy shedding light on those internal debates too. So when you take all of that into consideration, the challenge we often pose to our guest speakers and audience members, uh, namely that of searching for mutual understanding and even shared commitment with those who think differently than you, that challenge becomes more exciting when you start to grasp some of its deeper implications as well as its relationship to history. I often feel that my job involves a really striking combination of intellectual history and almost public humanities type work that mm -hmm. is both very, very rare and extremely exciting. So. Uh, to sum things up for you, here at the Howenstein Center, that phrase, finding common ground, it's not about just draping ourselves in the flag. As I've said elsewhere, it's not about promoting misty-eyed false unity. Um, you know, instead, it's about bringing attention to bear on crucial democratic conversations that are deeply informed by history and that need to take place among members of both the left and the right. And at a liberal arts institution like Grand Valley, I think programs of this nature are valuable for their own sake. You know, our events encourage people to, to learn broadly, uh, to think both critically and sympathetically, uh, to debate rigorously, and also to develop, I think, a, a healthy degree of doubt hmm. uh, that prepares you to deal with ambiguity and change and that fosters a lasting uh, curiosity about people who don't share all of your beliefs. And that's a really good thing. So Scott, I mean, I have a, I have a number of questions uh, about what you just said. I mean, you managed to predict, I think, <laughs> many of the things I was hoping to talk about. So that's, that's very good. I'm hoping to dig in um, to, uh, well, actually something that you said first, something that you said uh, just a couple moments ago, which is that the... Um, the, the, the widening gap between the left and right has perhaps produced a good deal of perhaps, I think the phrase you used was political apathy among voters and citizens. I think that's almost certainly true. But at, at the same time, so there's, I think there's got to be that group. But there's also a group that has responded to um, this, uh, this acrimony with a new sense of political purpose and so I'm hoping to ask a question about them so you know so, so if someone say someone were to be skeptical 
about the value of finding common ground and they were probably using the definition of common ground that you um that you sort of dismissed earlier but let's imagine that they're using this definition of common ground um okay. as you know the splitting of difference um i'm thinking they these skeptics might say something like this you know we're, we're in a cinema in a situation excuse me where political battle lines are being drawn um i the skeptic so disagree with the right or the left that I know I can't gain anything from meeting them halfway. Instead, I'm going to stick to the principles I have and fight for them and do the messy work of politics that way. How do you, Scott, reply to such a view? Does common ground mean being a moderate, or does it mean refusing to live in an echo chamber, perhaps the echo chamber I'm trying to describe? So let, let's say you were seated across from someone who thought that way. Um, what argument would you advance to convince him or her that it's worth at least discussing with someone from the sort of the sort of opposite pole yeah yeah that's that's a really good question um i've definitely encountered this argument uh you've mentioned i've encountered it before at you know in numerous contexts and it seems to me that the essence of this argument is that serious engagement with uh, progressive or conservative thought by those on the other side is all well and good when the stakes are low. Yeah. But when the stakes are high, it's time to set all of that aside and win a victory for our values, right? Once we're on top, we can take a moment to, uh, to bring the temperature down and approach the other side in a more open-minded way, but all bets are off until then. Um, in, I find that this argument is based on at least two flawed assumptions. So first, it assumes that understanding the other side on its own terms is not in itself a politically useful exercise. And this is simply not true. Um, if you want to move our society in a direction more consistent with your principles, one of the best things you can do is learn about how the other side thinks about itself. If you study their discourse, if you learn their history, it is far more likely that you will find those areas where your own principles can address the unresolved conflicts that people on the other side are grappling with among mm. themselves. And once you do that, you can bear witness not just to what you believe the weaknesses of the other side are, but what they consider their own weaknesses to be. And with that, you can make an argument for why your approach to the issue at hand is a better one. Now, does this guarantee that you're, you're going to win all the time in uh, the court of public opinion or uh, at the ballot box or just in the seminar room? Uh, no, no, it does not. Of course it doesn't. Political life is way more complicated than mere debate. There are lots of things that go into it, not all of them rational, but this approach does give you a way to engage the other side directly rather than just barraging them with arguments that they can easily dismiss, right? So taking the ideas of the other side seriously, even when the stakes are high, I think expands the tactical possibilities at your disposal in any given debate, and it increases the likelihood of truly meaningful conversation. It makes it far less likely that you're just going to 
talk past one another and you know never actually connect with anything that the other person cares about. If you want someone to think twice about their position, you should question its consistency with their own first principles before moving on to your principles. Uh, the second flawed assumption in the argument you mentioned is that one somehow becomes a more ethical or just a more effective public actor by limiting their exposure to different points of view. And, you know, it, it, I'm not sure how much I need to say about this because it strikes me as plainly an anti-intellectual stance. It's bereft of the humility and, uh, again, that basic level of self-doubt, I think, that all people should bring into the public arena. Um, I mean, at the very least, I think people should be open to having their basic views complicated, if not really changed at any particular moment. Because, I mean, after all, it's probably not in our nature to change our views about the big issues overnight. Politics is deeply tied to culture. It's wrapped into the way we see ourselves and the way we relate to others. So I'm not suggesting that people have to turn all their beliefs around on a dime. What I'm suggesting instead is that real self-awareness, you know, the kind it takes to make a meaningful contribution to the worldviews of other human beings, that requires experience and a lot of it with those who disagree with you. Mm. I mean, engaging with strong interlocutors, people who think differently than you do, I think is one of the best ways to clarify your own values and positions. So that's how I'd respond to the argument you mentioned. Common ground is not about being a moderate, though we don't run away from that. Instead, what it's about is practicing humility and cultivating self-awareness by refusing to live in an echo chamber. In doing that, you take a critical step toward sharpening your own thought and bringing your own best self to bear on matters of public concern. So whether I'm casually speaking to someone on the left or on the right, um, whether I'm talking to you know a leftist or a, you know a dyed-in-the-wool Trump supporter, in some way or another, I just tell them that you are ignoring the other side to your own detriment and at your own risk. So you let, let's find some sort of on the ground examples of, of what you're talking about and its and its dynamics. Uh, I think you've put it really well. I'm wondering if you might be able to just give listeners a sense of an upcoming uh, conference you have, the sort of conservative, I think you're calling it the conservative progressive conference. Um, yep. uh, so who's first, I guess my question is this, who's coming to that? And wh why did you choose or ask some of the guests to come and participate in this conference? And how does it, um, how does it encourage this, this interaction, this um, fruitful encounter between not just the left and right, but also between people on the left among themselves and between people on the right among themselves? Because you have, I think, as I was looking at your, 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 um, your speaker list, and you have people, for instance, conservatives, but of, of different conservative stripes and organizations. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that, for instance. Yeah, so... Um... The event that you're referencing is, is going to take place uh, just a little less than a month from now uh, on May 4th, 5th, and 6th. It's called the Conservative Progressive Summit. We're hosting it here in Grand Rapids. And uh, for this year's summit, 
as you mentioned, uh, we're going to host around 30 professors, journalists, and leaders, past and present, of various think tanks, uh, foundations, government agencies, uh, and, and other entities for conversation orbiting a variety of, of themes that are relevant to all of these political and intellectual and cultural challenges that Americans are facing at the present moment. And um, I'd just like to say that we do this with the support of three partners here in West Michigan, uh, the Kate and Richard Walters Foundation, as well as the Progressive Women's Alliance of West Michigan and the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal. So even our partnerships for this summit uh, reflect the interest on both the left and the right that our work generates. So what kinds of people are we bringing in for the summit? Well, we can just look at, I think, a representative sample of uh, the publications that have been impacted in some way by those who will be participating. We've got um, editors, advisors, uh, columnists, staff writers, contributors from, uh, well, I can just list them off here. I have them in some notes on my desk. Uh, the Atlantic, the U.S. News and World Report, The New Republic, The Nation, National Review, Jacobin, The American Conservative, Dissent, Reason, Vox, mm. N Plus One, Modern Age, First Things, Le Monde, The New Inquiry, Book Forum, and the list goes on. And it covers a wide range of uh, focuses and topics. And we're going to be hosting you know, current or former presidents or trustees or fellows of uh, the Truman Scholarship Foundation, the Earhart Foundation, uh, the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia, the African American Intellectual History Society, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, uh, the Acton Institute here in Grand Rapids, the Philadelphia Society, the Mont Pelerin Society, uh, the Foundation for Economic Education, and uh, again, the list goes on. Um, I need to add, of course, that these speakers are not attending the summit to represent these organizations in an official capacity, but nevertheless, the listing that I've just done, I hope it gives you a, a great illustration of the intellectual talent and energy that's going to be in Grand Rapids uh, early next month. And uh, I'd say for an example of how we'll be promoting that sort of intra-coalition dialogue um, among members of the left and among members of the right, I think a great example of this is going to be a roundtable that we're hosting to finish off the summit. We're just calling it uh, Conservative Thought in the Age of President Trump. And uh, our guest speakers on that, on that roundtable, it's going to be moderated by uh, Mark Henry, who is uh, a former uh, uh, vice president of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. He's done a lot of work with the conservative journals uh, Modern Age, the Intercollegiate Review, uh, First Things. And looking at the actual participants in this roundtable, uh, we're going to be hosting uh, Gary Gregg, who's a former president of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, ISI, a conservative educational organization and book publisher, um, Elizabeth Lash Quinn from Syracuse University, uh, Paul Murphy from right here at Grand Valley State University, who's done a lot of great work on the intellectual history of conservatism, uh, Jeffrey Pollitt from Hope College, 
who is the editor-in-chief of uh, an interesting kind of localist conservative blog called the Front Porch Republic, and also Robert Sirico, who is the president of the Acton Institute uh, for the Study of Religion and Liberty here in Grand Rapids. Now, not all of those speakers would identify as conservatives per se, but some of them do. And so I think that we're going to see a really interesting exchange um, where people on the right, for instance, people on the right or people who study the right respond to this uh, disruptive moment in American politics where uh, President Trump went from being perceived as uh, you know, something of a, a joke, not a serious candidate, all the way through to the White House. And uh, you can, I think, tack onto that the opening conversation that we're going to be hosting between uh, Daniel McCarthy, who is editor-in-chief of the American Conservative, with uh, George Hawley, who is a political scientist at the University of Alabama. He studies uh, white voter patterns. He studies the intellectual history of American conservatism, including um, certain sort of sub-ideologies on the American right that a lot of people don't know about. So uh, I think that for conservatism, especially at this conference, we're promoting some of that, um, that inner debate. But it's going to be on display uh, for the left as well, because you can see in our, our list of uh, guests that we're not just inviting um, sort of center-left Clinton Democrats. We're also inviting people like Bhaskar Sumkara from Jacobin Magazine, who's interested in building an intellectual movement that can uh, create a political alternative in American politics that exists to the left of liberalism. So really a robust, I think, diverse gathering of people that is going to um, generate a lot of great discussion, not just between progressives and conservatives of various stripes, but also among them as well. Um, so you also asked, I think, about how this event will encourage us to get out of our echo chambers. You know, how will it empower people to uh, wrestle with the great range of thought that exists in the academy and elsewhere on a number of critical issues? So here's where the design of the summit, I think, will really be beneficial. In a typical academic conference, those who attend are welcome to pick and choose among a variety of concurrent panels or panels that occur at the same time as one another. Um, people usually only come together at these gatherings for maybe one or two keynote addresses, maybe a reception as well. So gatherings of that nature tend to lack uh, a felt coherence even when the conference has been organized you know, around a specific theme. But at the Howenstein Center, we're gonna be doing things differently. Um, our summit will be unitary, meaning that everybody will be attending the same presentations and will be changing up the presentation format quite frequently over the course of the three days that we'll be together. Um, summit participants are pretty strongly encouraged to stay for the full duration of the conference to the greatest extent possible. And rather than just one or two keynotes and a large number of concurrent panels, what we're going to be doing is uh, one keynote conversation, five keynote lectures, um, one set of like dueling presentations, sort of like a debate, two moderated roundtable conversations, and you're going to be moderating one of those, Joe, mm -hmm. um, 
two traditional panels and even a teaching demonstration. So lots of different things going on. I think that this is a slightly unorthodox approach to planning a conference, but in this context, being unorthodox is a good thing. Uh, I think this design will keep people engaged and interested. It will keep the participants in one another's company. Um, it will attract, I think, a pretty diverse audience of faculty and students and community members. And, uh, you know, in that sense, I think this conference is going to be the opposite of an echo chamber. The presentations are going to cover a pretty wide range of subjects. So, uh, for example, just looking at the panels and roundtables, we have content on uh, religion and American civic life, constitutional history and interpretation, um, politics and journalism in the digital age. We have a panel on recent issues in higher education. Uh, and again, that roundtable on conservative thought in the age of Trump. Um, these keynote presentations are going to examine everybody from Karl Marx to Robert Nisbet. They're going to mention or explore uh, the history of American news media uh, and even the concept of meritocracy and its really complicated, difficult relationship with democratic thinking. So to summarize, this conference is going to be all about escaping the echo chamber. Mm. Um, and you know, the other kind of question that, you know, might come to mind is, well, how will this help us to find common ground in an age of, of hyperpolarization? Well, uh, I guess we'll find out soon. And <laughs> for those who can't make it to Grand Rapids for the conference, we do post video recordings of these presentations on the website. We'll be doing that later in the summer. We're really committed to making these intellectual resources as widely and as easily available as possible so that people all over the world can can see what happens when you bring these these public intellectuals and thought leaders together. Well, I, I, so I have a number of, as always, I have a number of questions about that, Scott. I mean, first is I love that formulation uh, that you came up with, uh, that, that most conferences lack a certain felt coherence. Uh, and I, I applaud you for um, trying to encourage that by mixing up the the um, the format and style of the conference. I'm very I'm 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 very excited to uh, to visit for um for that panel. And I'll just I'll just add really quickly. I mean to to, to the question of of um, who from the left you're bringing out. I mean people on my panel include um, Sarah Leonard at the Nation and David Marcus. Um, who is also at the nation, and I mean, one thing that I'm so excited about is that uh, Marcus is, um, I believe, literary editor at the nation, uh -huh. uh, and and in that sense, he's doing um, he's doing work that would have um, a kind of political function, but is itself obviously literary, that yeah. is more broadly humanistic, and that's one question I, I was hoping to put to you, Scott. Is I mean, what so uh, in many ways, what you could be describing would be purely political or exist on the level of policy debate and policy compromise. But of course it isn't. What you're talking about is, um, is a debate about ideas in a sense and a debate about culture, um, and about, um, what it would mean to live a good life in America today. And, and it's wildly and beautifully perhaps pluralistic sense. Um, yeah. I mean, what, what value do you think, 
on the one hand, um, you know, do, doing the work that you do at a uh, at a humanities institution, at a liberal arts university, what value do you think that brings to the kinds of conversations you're hoping to promote and to conduct? So I guess you're kind of asking me about the relationship of the work that we do at the Hauenstein Center to our location at a liberal arts university? That's right. That's right. And just, that's right. Generally, what value do you think your work brings to, say, even students who are at Grand Valley and who are trying to not just learn about politics and policy broadly, but also about the humanities? Yeah, that's that's a really great question, Joe. And um, I think it actually gets to um, something, an article that we've been discussing um, that was published recently by Daniel Dresner in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Do you oh, know yeah. What yeah, sure, the public intellectual. Yeah, yeah. it's called... Um, it's called Triumph of the Thought Leader mm-hmm. in the Eclipse of the Public Intellectual, which has been, you know, a pretty prominent motif, at least in some of these, uh, you know, literary and cultural and um, higher education type outlets, magazines. Um, you know, a lot of people can comment pretty astutely on those concepts, uh, certainly more so than I can. People like uh, Corey Robin and Mark Greif come to mind. But mm. this article captured my attention for... Um, a few paragraphs. I'll just kind of summarize Dresner's article for for you. Uh, do you mind if I read an excerpt from oh, the, the piece? By, by all means. Okay. Well, Dresner is basically looking to categorize uh, two different types of influencers, you might say, in the world of ideas, and he he categorizes them into uh, public intellectuals on the one hand and thought leaders on the other hand. And so this is basically Dresner's argument. Both public intellectuals and thought leaders engage in acts of intellectual creation, but their style and purpose are different. To adopt the language of Isaiah Berlin, public intellectuals are foxes who know many things, while thought leaders are hedgehogs who know one big thing. The former are skeptics, the latter are true believers. A public intellectual will tell you everything that is wrong with everyone else's ideas. A thought leader will tell you everything that is right about his or her own idea. Both intellectual types serve a vital purpose in in a democracy. Public intellectuals are often bashed as elitists, but they help to expose shibboleths masquerading as accepted wisdom. They are critics, and critiquing bad ideas is a necessary function. Their greatest contribution to public discourse is to point out when an emperor has no clothes. Mm. Thought leaders, on the other hand, are often derided as glib TED talkers lacking in substance, but they can introduce and promote new ideas. During times of uncertainty and change, thought leaders can offer intellectually stimulating ways to reimagine the world. A public sphere dominated by public intellectuals has high barriers to entry. The marketplace of ideas becomes ossified and stagnant over time. One dominated by thought leaders has high barriers to exit. Too many bad ideas linger in the intellectual ether. A healthy public discourse in which good ideas rise to the top requires a balance between the two types of thinkers. And then Dresner goes on to argue that um, our politics are suffering from a lack of balance. The pendulum has swung too far toward thought leaders and too far away from public intellectuals, and we're in need of, of greater parity between these, uh, these two camps he identifies. And, you know, every once in a while you read something that affirms what you've been working on, what you've been doing, but kind of reach that conclusion independently. And I think that's what, what Dresner has done here. It's really heartening because when you look at the, the roster for our conservative progressive summit, 
of course we have journalists, we have uh, you know think tank people, uh, we have people who are very uh, passionately committed to the way that they see the world in a political sense, and that's all well and good, uh, and it's important, and I think you can make you know brilliant contributions to public life in that capacity. But we're also inviting people who I think will be well equipped as um, leading figures in the academy to challenge not just those with whom they disagree, but also their fellow travelers on certain, um, you know, more problematic aspects of their thought, expedient conclusions, um, uncomplicated perceptions, assumptions in need of questioning, things like that. So um, what can we offer to students? Well, you know, I think that uh, one's experiences in higher education as a student can vary pretty dramatically in some cases based on the specific type of post-secondary institution that you're talking about, right? So mm. just consider all the different types you can name. Community colleges, uh, denominational colleges, small elite liberal arts colleges. You've got regional public universities, flagship publics, uh, wealthy private research universities, and, and so on and so forth. So if I had to characterize you know all of these different types of institutions in one fell swoop i would describe them as really misunderstood and i'm, I'm kind of getting to your point in a peripheral way so i need to explain what i mean by this um a lot of attention has been paid recently to protests and subsequent debates over like free speech on college campuses yeah sure and these are very very important debates to have um, conversations of that nature loomed pretty large during my own time as an undergraduate at Grand Valley, and I'm glad that they did. I learned a great deal from those exchanges. But I do fear that the intense media focus on the occasional, uh, what you might call a free speech flare-up at an elite college, those tend to obscure other issues in higher education that are of more immediate concern to a much larger number of people. So your average college student um, does not study at a highly, highly selective elite place like, like Middlebury College, for instance. Mm -hmm. in, in raw statistical terms, most college students study at places that are a lot more similar to Grand Rapids Community College or Grand Valley State University. And I wish that more attention in the national conversation about college campuses and about the quality of intellectual life on college campuses would be granted to the problems in higher education that affect a very large number of these students. Um, recently, there was, I think, a senior fellow and like a research assistant at the Brookings Institution who have argued that um, like speaker disinvitations and protests, which apparently disproportionately affect conservatives, are more likely to take place in institutions where larger proportions of students come from wealthier backgrounds. And I'm sure there's there's um, you know any number of good articles criticizing their conclusions or pointing out where uh, the data doesn't necessarily support their interpretation. But their argument is that look at this correlation, hence the Middlebury incident with Charles Murray, right? Um, and that's where they're coming from in making that argument. And even though there's still 
a lot we don't know about the particular students at Middlebury, for instance, who participated in the protest and turned it violent. Um, you know, for the most part, that handful of students, they don't constitute a representative sample of what higher education really looks like in this country. And I think there are lots of students out there who are interested in things uh, like what we do at the Howenstein Center, where they can gain uh, free public access to uh, national thought leaders and public intellectuals. You know, most students in the United States, I think, are less concerned with whether a guest speaker's work flatters all of their sensibilities because they're far more concerned with, um, you know, just how they're going to pay for a college education. Do we need to talk about free speech issues on college campuses? Yes, yes, of course we do. Um, it's very important to the work we do at the Hallenstein Center that people are comfortable confronting um, real difference in a political and philosophical sense. Students should have the opportunity to explore those differences as an essential component of their education, without which not, right? And to do that, they, they need access to progressive and conservative ideas. Um, but I, I think we also need to talk about you know, the fact that um, the rising costs of attending college in this country are making just about every other growth in costs of living pale in comparison. This problem has huge implications for class divisions in our society, um, for the pretty bleak urban-rural divisions that were on clear display in the election and that have captured a lot of attention recently. Um, they have huge implications, these divisions, for growing resentment and distrust of colleges and universities and, and the people who work at them. Um, and these divisions, you know, they undermine real diversity of thought at many of our colleges and universities. And, um, you know, that's what makes me proud of being at a place like the Hauenstein Center, which uh, trusts students to uh, approach the subject matter on its own terms and use it to draw their own conclusions uh, about uh, their values, about history, uh, about the world they see before them. So I guess that's what it's sort of like, you know, running the Common Ground Initiative and, and bringing progressive and conservative speakers to campus for our programs. I think that we've been successful with this programming uh, because we are based at a place like Grand Valley State University, a public liberal arts institution with a large student body that is becoming more diverse every year. Uh, in fact, I think like a third of our student body is composed of Pell Grant recipients. There was a report mm. released um, late in October 2015 by the Institute for Higher Education Policy. I think this report was supported by the Gates Foundation. Uh, and it showed that, uh, I've got the number here, 48.4% of all Pell recipients in the state of Michigan were enrolled at Grand Valley. You know, nearly half of all Pell recipients in the entire state at just one university. That's an incredible accomplishment. It's something we can be proud of. Um, I believe that this is an institution which, in the big picture, does a great job of expanding access to higher education and getting students, um, often from modest means, on an upwardly mobile track. And in terms of the amount of people affected, uh, that is a huge issue that I don't think gains enough attention in the national conversation because we focus on, uh, you know, the uh, occasional 
uh, you know, sort of outburst against free speech on college campuses. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the outcomes of this is that, you know, Grand Valley attracts students and faculty from a lot of truly different backgrounds. And there's just, there's still a lot of work to do in this regard, but things are getting better every year. And, and being in West Michigan, being in the Grand Rapids area, I think we're in an excellent location for getting students and faculty and community members to see the value, to experience the value of substantive exchange between progressives and conservatives in this in these kinds of public programs. You know, both the left and the right have an active and influential presence in the communities of this region. So I think you'd be hard pressed uh, to find a better place to do this kind of work. And that's that's a really long roundabout way of answering your question of what this does for students, but it provides them with access to um, all sorts of really amazing people who come to Grand Valley for Common Ground programs. And it provides them with access to uh, high quality intellectual resources and to a community that's dedicated to sparking conversations about ideas that matter. And, uh, you know, I think um, anymore, that's not something you can take for granted at any uh, institution of higher ed that you visit. We've really got something special going on, and I think our students are benefiting from it. Well, Scott, uh, that's I, I think you've put it very well, um, and I know I, I can't take up too much more of your time. I do want to get in a question sort of about you and the, the other kinds of work you do and its relationship with, with the Common Ground Initiative. I, I mean, y you referenced your time as a student at Grand Valley, and I think even then when you were an undergraduate, you were in many ways a sort of working historian. You worked in a number of archives, as I recall, um, yeah. and, and the work that you did um, there uh, became the source of the source material essentially for keynote presentations that you've been giving more recently on a number of topics, including on on the encyclopedia uh, and on Diderot. Uh, I've got I've got to imagine you bring your work in history into conversation with your work in uh, contemporary political and cultural debate. So when you assess the current political situation and when you plan with uh, Gleaves Whitney, the director of the Howenstein Center, when you plan events and debates to host, which historical moments and figures do you most often think about, perhaps directly from your work? So who can we learn from? Oh, wow. Which historical figures do I most often think about? Who can we learn from? Or, or even which debates do you? I mean, I'm just I'm I'm drawn to this idea of Diderot, especially because I mean, in many ways, he was to appropriate a different sort of term from the French. Uh, he was a kind of salonier too, a sort of a, in the Republic of Letters, bringing yeah. together different thinkers to debate and discourse. And I, I just I have to imagine that sometimes when you're when you're doing your work, you think ah, I, I'm striving to be like Diderot or something. Perhaps that's <laughs> that's saying too much. I have no idea. But I'm just wondering if you could respond to that. No, you you figured me out there, Joe. And, uh, I, I think if you have another three and a half hours for this conversation, yeah. I'd be happy to tell you all about it. Um, no, just kidding. Um, so basically, since like the first few weeks of my undergraduate studies at Grand Valley, this was like uh, the fall of 2012. I was a fresh-faced 17-year-old. Since then, I've been you know absolutely fascinated by 18th-century studies and by Diderot and the intellectual history of the French Enlightenment in particular. And here I owe, I think, a special debt to my professors in the honors program in the honors college here. Uh, my first course in honors was team taught by 
a social historian, um, a literary scholar, and an art historian. And these three professors, they used what are called role immersion games in their classroom. Uh, specifically, they used certain installments from the reacting to the past curriculum that was pioneered by Mark Carnes, who I think was a guest on your podcast a while back. Mm-hmm. Um, and this way of learning history, I was basically assigned to assume the person of Diderot for um, a, a resurrection of the Salon of Madame Geoffrin in 18th century Paris. This way of learning history, of immersing yourself in the world of the person you are assigned to actually become in the classroom during these exercises, it really stuck with me. Um, it encouraged me to learn as much as I could about Diderot's encyclopedia and then to to do my own research on the subject, you know, to give national conference presentations and publish journal articles, curate a, a public exhibition and give those keynotes you mentioned and so on and so forth. And it's all because of that really impactful way that the material was taught to me. But going back to your original question, yeah, the, the people whom I have studied in the greatest depth in my in my short career, if you will, lived and worked in the milieu of the great 18th century French saloniers and philosophes, mm. uh, specifically those who contributed to this uh, Diderot's encyclopedia. This was a, a 28-volume reference work that was originally published between 1751 and 1772, um, essentially in an attempt to make a great body of human knowledge accessible in a single unit of writing and illustrations, right? This text was distinctive, I think, for its focus on the trades and crafts and activities of ordinary people, as well as for some of its democratic sensibilities and its challenges to the Catholic Church and the French royal government at the time. Uh, This was listed on the Vatican's Index of Forbidden Books. It was condemned by Pope Clement XIII. Uh, The editors, including Diderot, were threatened with the death penalty for sedition by the French government for uh, standing up for, uh, you know, the principle of natural equality over inherited status, you know, critical thinking over deference to authority. And... uh, This was a really bold project in 18th century France, and I've loved studying it, but it's kind of a difficult text to study because, again, it assembles a really very wide range of thought into a single body of text. And so I do draw inspiration from Diderot when it comes to common ground in that regard. You know, and I've drawn inspiration from Diderot, I think, for a number of other different projects, too. So the encyclopedia contains nearly 22 million words. So here in the 21st century, uh, large texts of this nature are being analyzed by scholars in the digital humanities with help from, you know, comprehensive source digitization projects, um, with help from text mining applications that help us to learn new things about the work that would go unnoticed just by close reading with the naked eye, although close reading by actual human eyes is always important too. I originally became interested in Diderot's encyclopedia because of great teaching and because my experiences in archives and in libraries and even on student government as an undergraduate led me to think a lot about the very rich history and also like the changing contemporary landscape of how ideas 
are or are not made accessible to people, you know, the scholarly communication in the world. So I'm interested in learning about how scholars exchange ideas with each other, how they do or do not disseminate their thoughts and arguments to wider publics. So strangely enough, perhaps counterintuitively, uh, my interest in Diderot and my work in building support for what's called open access scholarly publishing and my work as a program manager for the Common Ground Initiative, all of that really goes hand in hand in my mind because it's all about you know, making high quality intellectual resources accessible to people on a democratic basis in an attempt to revitalize the connection between the academic humanities and the broader society. And then just a few other thoughts. My interest in the Enlightenment in another way relates to Common Ground because a lot of my recent reading has been focused on the intellectual history of American conservatism. So right now, for example, I'm reading uh, Paul Murphy's great book, The Rebuke of History, which is about the Southern agrarians and their relationship to conservative thought. So the historiography of conservatism in the United States has recently gotten me interested in the extent to which our uh, recent or even contemporary political divisions are influenced by the grappling that we Americans are still doing with the legacy of our founding century and, uh, and with the merits and the shortcomings of enlightenment thought. So going back to my remarks about scholarly communication, um, I'm primarily interested in learning and writing more about what you might call the politics of information access. Who gets access to intellectual resources and who doesn't, but also maybe someday I'll, I'll get a chance to maybe do a different project to study in depth uh, the responses of, say, American conservatism to Enlightenment thought, which also could be a really exciting undertaking, albeit a different one. I, I know I just kind of touched lightly on a lot of different things. So, I mean, if you want to go into like open access or something more, I, I guess I'm happy to. Well, I know I also know, Scott, that I, I got to let you go in a couple minutes here. However, I will go ahead at this moment and take credit for just by asking those questions, take credit for the fact that you so clearly have been able in your scrambling to yoke together the varieties of work that you do in response to my question. A very clear mission statement for perhaps the next 20 years of your life. So you're <laughs> welcome, Scott. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, and I, I'll say now, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And um, it's been really great talking with you. Yeah, thank you, Joe. That was Scott St. Louis, program manager of the Common Ground Initiative at the Howenstein Center. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney, Kadar Jabbar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies, and it's been quite a year for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. 
You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.